have you noticed that something is different here tonight? <laughs> We're all sitting up here, right? I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last uh, days, we just had the person who was talking sitting up here on stage, and the rest of us were on chairs. So, And the reason for that is that um, we will actually share the talk tonight, and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and so um, one idea that we had, and... I just want to kind of see where that's going, um, was that we kind of do like an improv Dharma talk. So the idea on that would be that I get four words from the audience. <laughs> and um, you know that the group upstairs, their retreat is called the Dharma and the Drama. And um, so we were just like playing around with that a little bit. Um, and so we do, we, I mean, I can just see what I get and then I can decide <laughs> if I want to do that or not. <laughs> yeah, so, so think about, so, um, uh, so just a, a few parameters. So one is, so we will talk about how to implement practice at home tomorrow and we will also talk about how to transition back from retreat into everyday life tomorrow. So those are things we actually want to address tomorrow. But if you're thinking right now, so like, um, so in one word, so where do you struggle the most or where are you stuck the most? in regards to this practice? Or the path, yes. Fear. Bear? Fear. Oh, fear. <laughs> fear of bears, okay. <laughs> Judgment, mm-hmm. Self-judgment? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so self-judgment, just a second. Judgment. And guilt, forgiveness. So we've got a bunch here. So guilt, forgiveness, belief, open-heartedness. We can do a couple of Dharma talks here, <laughs> but heartedness, joy, rumination, lust, lost. Mm -hmm. I think lust is a good one too. Lost. Anatta in daily life. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so the first four that I have here were fear, judgment, self-judgment, and guilt. Um, So just let me think about that for a moment. Okay, let's try what we see what we come up with here. Um, I opened up my computer for that. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So here's the poem. Let's. It's just like let's just go with this because I sometimes I find um, what happens on these retreats is that we start to get entangled with each other or we get entrained, our minds get entrained because we are together here and we influence each other. So I'm going to read you a poem by Rumi which I had pulled up to read to you starting off and um, you can see if that makes sense in regards to the words that we just came up with. And then I'll um, unfold that a little bit more. It's rigged. Everything in your favor. So there's nothing to worry about. Is there some position you want some office, some acclaim, some award, some con, some lover, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four, all at once, maybe a relationship with God. I know there's a gold mine in you. And when you find it, the wonderment of the earth's gifts, you will lay aside as naturally as does a child, a doll. But dear, how sweet you look to me kissing the unreal. Comfort, fulfill yourself in any way possible. Do that until you ache, until you ache. Then come to me again. So for me, um, this is really a lot what we're doing here. So what we see is that we don't see our own worth and we look for fulfillment and acknowledgement and happiness and contentment outside of us while It is here, and it has always been here. We've just lost the connection. And so we are playing with what is unreal. And so Rumi, of course, so Rumi, he is a mystic, or he was a 14th century Persian mystic. So he um, talks often like in the voice of the all-knowing, or the one who can't be named 
right? So he comes from that place, from the ultimate, um, the absolute, whatever you want to call that. And basically what he says, it's, I, you're perfect, you're whole, and right now you're caught in these, with these toys. And I love you, and I love you seeing, playing with what is unreal. And please do that, just keep doing that until you realize that this is unreal. And then just like a child at some point will put down her doll, his doll, to then turn to something that is more real. And in that moment, right, you start to, um, you notice that you're longing for something else, something that is more real, that really brings more fulfillment, a deeper fulfillment, something that is more stable in a way, in all the unstable nature that we have been talking about over this last week. So how do then, so fear, guilt, judgment, self-judgment, to me they're kind of quite related and they're very painful. They're very painful emotions. And so I just want to start off here and then my colleagues can take up from there um, to just share um, two practices which are for me very interrelated. So one is how to work with challenging emotions. And so there's one like practice that I want to share with you. I'm sure some of you already know that, which is... Um, the, the RAIN acronym, and then to also see like how can we um, weave uh, self-compassion into that, which also is very, very helpful when we're dealing with painful emotions. And I'll try to do that in five minutes. <laughs> okay, so you have to obviously pick it up it's a, at some point. So... Um, I think the most important piece to uh, know when we're working with challenging emotions is that emotions, they have a, a cognitive aspect and they have an, um, a physical aspect in the body, right? So emotions, usually they come with a story, but they're also something that is either felt in the body or some people can't feel it in the body. It's more like then, so like some people when I ask, so how do you know you're angry? They say, I have angry thoughts. The thing with that is that actually we experience emotions in the body and they are very, um, again, uh, impersonal, predictable patterns, how emotions show up. And emotions are also widely recognizable across cultures. Right, so that's important again. So, like, there is where the impersonal part comes in. Like, anger in my body feels like anger in your body, or anger in your body. Right. So, there's a lot of um, uh, common ground again, and, and something that is not personal. And um, the thing is that the emotion registers in the body whether you are aware of it or not. So. If your body is stressed, and this is again like for me, like one of the big reasons why um, 
I love this, the body practice so much, the 32 bo- parts of the body or the body scan because it reconnects us with the body so that we can pick up the messages from the body more clearly and we can pick them up when they're this big and not like basically when they're like this and they've been shouting and pushing against trying to get some access to consciousness up there saying like, hello, I need help here, right? And many of you know this, like you only start listening to the body, like when the body says like, okay, that's it, try without me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> um, so we are sensitizing, so we are relearning often the language of the body, right? So that we can pick up stress symptoms and we can pick up emotions. But then what happens is that often we have emotions that we don't like, right? So we have emotions that we would try really not to feel. And there are many different reasons why we are not comfortable feeling them. First of all, they are uncomfortable. And then often like we might have growing up learned a lesson that it is not okay to feel a particular emotion. Like maybe for you growing up, it was not okay to be angry or it was not okay to be sad, right? So you got very clear messages that like, no, that's, that's not okay. So you learn to bottle that up and maybe at some point even stopping to feel that emotion. Um, so that means often like when these emotions come up, we really try to avoid to have them here. Problem is they are, <laughs> right? And so our strategies, of course, are to kind of avoid them, to push them, suppress them. Problem is that they are not going away, right? So we're not kind of feeling them. So like we have this saying of like, you have to feel them to heal them, right? Or the way out is through, right? So if we don't do that, they start to do damage in other areas. So that was four minutes. (laughs) Um, So... When we're practicing mindfulness practice, um, what we start to do is we start to see that the emotion usually has, again, the physical component, like that is what I don't like to feel, and then it has a story with it, or several stories, right? And what we learn with the mindfulness practice is to see that the cognitive component is different than the physical component. Right? So the thing is that um, the cognitive always makes sense. <laughs> and that is often where we get, we get caught in the story. And when we start to engage with the story and we start to find evidence for that, and what we do, or we ruminate, so we keep telling the same story over and over. And what we do with that is we kind of keep re-pushing the button that releases whatever needs to be released in the body to feel or to actually evoke the emotion. And we are often not aware of this, right? So you all know that situation. So you're upset about something and you go over it and over it and you feel it and you feel it. And then, I don't know, you go to bed or you get distracted. You forget all about it, right? So your body's just like, oh, cool, like nothing happening here. And then you remember, Right, so something makes you remember something and bam, right, it's right back here. And then we go into that loop again. So what our practice really is to see that we do not want to engage 
with the content at this point. Maybe at some point you have to do that, maybe do therapy on that. So there's definitely a place for that. But as we're sitting here and kind of as a rule of thumb, what we do is really we notice where do we feel the emotion in the body. So what we do is we notice where is, this, where is it the strongest and then we move the focus of attention from wherever it was before, let's say the breath or the, your left toe, whatever. You bring it to where you feel it the most in the body. And then you, that is your object to pay attention to. And you notice as when we do all the other practices how the mind goes into the story. We can say thank you, not now to come back and there you see there you can actually really apply the breathing where you go like oh I'm bored to death to just feel another breath nothing is happening here but what you're doing you're training the mind right so you see like oh it's a thought and I come back it's a thought and I come back so you train really this capacity because this is to actually to disengage from a charged thought is a lot harder I'm sure you've all noticed that this week right so, and then we stay with this emotion. And then what we do is um, we um, use the practice. So, first of all, we are aware of this. So, we're aware something is going on at some point. That is already, already can be quite radical. Don't know about you. I have the tendency, so often like for me, when an unpleasant emotion comes up, I pretend it's not there. It's like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like, no, 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 it's, it's okay. It's okay, right? And then at some point I go, okay, yeah. No, actually that did hurt my feelings. Do you know that, right? So then, okay, so just to recognize it, which is the first step of the RAIN acronym. So R stands for recognize. And then um, the A is acknowledge it, right? So some, sometimes like we say like accept, accept is very strong. I think start with acknowledging. <laughs> if you can accept it, that's great. But often we can't make ourselves accept it, but we can make ourselves acknowledge it. And that means like, okay, yeah, that's here. So yeah, there's, that's, that's fear here, right? So from going kind of unconscious, pretending it's not here, we actually say, yeah, this is here. And then the I is for, um, for interest or investigate, but people get, like, if you, if you read that up at later uh, or you know about it, so the investigation is sometimes tricky because people think then they have to investigate why they're feeling that way. And that's not what it is about at all. It's actually, we don't care in that moment why we're feeling that way. But what we do right now is to investigate where does that show up in our experience here. Right? So that's the investigation part or the interest. Bringing curiosity to like, so, okay, so fear. So where, where is that guilt? Where is that self-judgment? Where is that? And then um, what we do then, the N, which ties very nicely into our entire retreat, is to not identify. And that is, for me, uh, that's my favorite step. <laughs> And basically what that means is so often when we practice um, uh, or when we're aware of feelings, right? Because especially the feelings that we like the least, right? So again, we have a history with them. And that also means we have a story with them. And usually we have quite a strong identification with them, right? So here is that fear again, right? 
And then immediately, like, this whole thing shows up of, like, yeah, and I'm just an anxious person, and I can't get a handle on it, and after all the therapy that I've done, and, right, so immediately, out of just a quite an innocent thing that is happening in your physiology here, right, suddenly you have a huge identity that goes back decades here. And to handle with that and be with that, that is really hard. So what we do is we rephrase that. And so really maybe notice so how you're actually talking to yourself. So instead of saying, like, I'm anxious, right? You can just do that right now. So you can just feel into, so how does it feel if you go into, say to yourself, I'm anxious or I'm angry? Just see where that lands, what happens in your body. And then we're rephrasing that into um, there's a lot of anxiety here. Or this is what anxiety feels like. There's a lot of anger here. And this is what anger feels like. So if you just repeat that a couple of times and just notice if that lands differently in your system. Anybody notices a difference with that? Right? So when we're saying just this is anxiety, then it's just like, yeah, it's still unpleasant, right? We're not denying it. It's still here, right? But we're not saying this is who I am. Because to be with something who I am that I don't like and maybe that I've fought against for many, many years, to be with that, that's a tall order, right? But if I just say, well, this is anger, this is what anger feels like, you can go like, oh yeah, anger. And anger is a, like, again, an, a, um, every human being experiences anger. Every human being experiences uh, anxiety. And in that way, it's not personal. That's just what arises in our awareness. So that is a way how we can work with um, emotions, like fear, judgment, and guilt. And shame. Shame is another big one, right? So shame is an emotion that is really, really hard to be with. But in the end, it's like, yeah, this is what shame feels like, right? And we all, when we feel shame, we feel the same emotion. And that actually, can I talk two more minutes? Thank you. <laughs> um, so that then ties into the practice of self-compassion. So... Self-compassion, if we want to break it down, like um, Kristen Neff, uh, the way she has done that, so she says like self-compassion has three components. So the first one is mindfulness, so that's just the awareness. That is kind of what we just did, like with the recognize and the acknowledge, right? So you are aware that right now there is, let's say, anxiety, there is judgment, there is guilt here in the system. And then the second step is um, the shared humanity, right? So we're bringing it back to the non-identification with it. That means in that moment we can say, yes, and this is what it feels like 
for a human being to feel anxious or to feel angry or you can or to feel judgmental to feel um, self-judgment and it is in particular helpful if we are then looking into the bigger picture so we can definitely do that with an emotion right but then like often it's really helpful to just really to name your situation more clearly right so that could be that i don't know like you have to, of course, make that into your own situation, but to say like, and this is what it feels like for a young father to have back pain so I can't lift my children, right? And do you see that? So it is on one level, it is more specific. So we're not just saying like all human beings experience that, but we make it a little bit more specific in that way, but it is still shared humanity because all fathers, right, who have such bad back pain that they can't lift their children and therefore experience a lot of frustration or um, sadness, grief, anger around that. So that is shared. And what we do in that moment is really we are reaching out to our siblings, our human siblings who know the same situation. And that is helpful, right? Because often... What happens in, the, in moments when we're in pain, we collapse into ourselves and we isolate, we feel isolated. It often feels like nobody gets this, nobody understands this, I might not know anybody who is in the exact same situation and so it feels like it's just me, right? And feeling isolated, I think is probably one of the worst feelings we can experience as a human being. So that is really what we do. So the self-compassion opens up into the community again. And then the third step with the self-compassion is um, kindness, right? And the kindness that can expressed in different ways, often like, for example, so like that is like, um, um, we've talked about that, like putting a hand on your heart, holding your own hand, Right? Really saying like, okay, internally saying like, I'm here, I'm here. So that you're not abandoning yourself because that is usually when what, what we do when we're in pain. We abandon ourselves, right? And then and often it is really then, sometimes or then nobody else can't reach us either. If we can't be there for ourselves, then we often we can't even accept the love that comes from the outside because we feel unworthy to accept it. So there's also a very deep connection between really practicing self-compassion for ourselves, learning to be our own best friend so we can be better friends and better receiving friends, receiving love from others. So there's a very... Um, for me, very uh, interesting and very tender connection in that. So, um, I think I'll stop here. Um, so, to give my colleagues <laughs> at least a little bit of time to, um, if you want to riff of this or take the next four on the list. <laughs> So, Bob goes next. Oh, Anushka goes next. <laughs> yep. You want the words? I have the words. 
Okay. I just keep talking if you can't decide. <laughs> I'm going to do a different orbit. So. Different orbit. Okay. You do a different orbit also. Okay. So, all right. We orbit into something different now. But I'll, I'll keep this list because I think that's actually a very beautiful list. So, thank you. So uh, I want to uh, spend a little bit of time um, talking about something that is a little bit related to bringing this practice that we've been doing here um, back home for you. And we'll talk more about it um, tomorrow for sure. And the area that I want to talk about is specifically uh, this unique aspect of recognizing the body, you know, which is one aspect of Dharma practice uh, that is like always accessible in some way. Uh, and in some ways like very simple, and yet something that we skip many opportunities to uh, deepen our understanding about our, uh, our nature, our understanding about what's true about the body. So a little bit unusual is I'm going to talk to you about extremely mundane, mundane aspects of your life <laughs> that usually you will gloss over, in your life, and many times people say, I don't have time for practice when I go home. Like, I'm really busy, I have kids, I have commute, I have job, I have work. So, these are all things that you do, that um, you already do, that I'm going to suggest that you can make part of your practice. And partly I want to say them here because sometimes the Dharma Hall is considered like, oh, the most, uh, you know, sacred space here. So, I want to bring together the sacred and the utter profane. Uh, so that maybe sometime you'll remember when you are, for example, clipping your toenails, uh, that, uh, you know, it's something that you might do usually like very quickly and not paying attention. And it's like, uh, oh, I have to do this task so I can get on to something more important, the more sophisticated intellectual activity or a more enjoyable activity. So uh, I'm going to suggest, for example, with this cutting your fingernails and toenails that you can actually pause in that, even do it at the same speed that you usually do it, but actually pay attention in a different way. So we've already gone over these categories, right? Fingernails, the nails, head hair, body hair, all this stuff. So use this as a little reminder bell, you know, when you cut your fingernails. Like notice, like, oh, this aspect of the body, and you could even look at it now if you want, right? They've been, even this week it's probably been growing, right? Uh, and it's been growing, like, without any uh, intentional effort on your part, right? And maybe it's been growing the way you like, maybe not the way you like, maybe too long, maybe too short, right? Uh, maybe as you cut it, it's like, oh, the corner doesn't get done properly, it's, like, sticking out way you don't like, or, um, you know, you have some critique of it or something like that. But so take the opportunity to notice this way in which the body is just developing as part of nature like this. And then as you cut them, uh, I would actually recommend that you don't immediately cut right into the trash can, right? But so cut onto a piece of paper and actually look at the rind of your nails, right? Like actually take a moment to see that. And then once it's off your body, see like, oh, is this me or mine now, right? Like, like what if this is me or mine? And um, 
similar with um, for some people, uh, they shave, right? So either um, maybe you have to shave a, a beard or a mustache or maybe you shave your armpits or shave your legs or whatever it is that you might choose to shave. Sometimes head, right? Uh, check also, like little tiny stubbly hairs can come off that, right? And like, what is that? You know, what is that mess that comes off that we then consider suddenly it's like trash, right? We have to sweep it up, we have to throw it away. So where's the boundary between like, oh, this is me, this was me, this is mine, and then it's like, oh, now it's like just matter. You know, it's like part of nature or something like that. It's like not me or mine. It's a refuse, right? Slight sidebar on this, I, I lived in Bali, Indonesia for a little while when I was in college. And there, there was a, and at some other places, I think they have this belief that um, when you do things like cut your fingernails or your hair, uh, that uh, you actually need to be very careful about what you do with these uh, remnants of the body. So they would say to actually bury them in the ground. Uh, because if you didn't, there was a way in which uh, identity theft could happen. So now here we think identity theft, like your credit card, uh, your email password, right? This is like modern American thing. Like you must protect these numbers. That's the, your identity, right? But here there was this idea that if this stuff that came off your body was uh, captured by someone who had ill intent towards you, they could uh, sort of use that to do some kind of like bad wishes for you, right? Uh, so yeah, what is you or yours? When is it you or yours? And when is it not, right? But I don't suggest that you have to take up this belief of burying things, you know, in your yard, but uh, just in different places they have different beliefs, right? Okay, showering. So, go to the shower. Sometimes you might do that very quickly. Um, Christiana did a very beautiful, like, thank you practice with us today. So, what if when you actually showered your body, you did that with some sense of uh, love or gratitude or kindness, like as you're cleaning yourself. And yeah, you can still do it fast, but what would that be like if you like are, are soaping or rubbing or um, washing yourself with a sense of love and gratitude for the body? So we assume that uh, we're going to be functional enough to take a shower, right, to, to be able to do this. And um, we assume that we can do things um, the next day that we did the day before. A part of the Dharma is recognizing like we don't actually know. You know, we have these assumptions about how long we live, about how able-bodied we will be, uh, about, yeah, what our, our state of functionality is, and we never actually know. So to take the moment to have some gratitude for the body, right, um, as you're cleaning it, and, uh, yeah, and we've reflected some on all these different organs that are doing some work, uh, too. So even if you're not explicitly cleaning your liver or uh, <laughs> something, intestines. You could even give some gratitude as you're like cleaning this area. Right. And also usually from the shower or bath, you can see some rind of dirt that comes, you know, or hairs that have come off. So likewise, as you're cleaning them up, you could take a moment to recognize like, oh, look at this. What was me, not me, right? Back to nature, right? All of this stuff. Um, the toilet, yes. So this was mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta. Urination defecation, right? That was actually like a segment in that part of the sutta that I read to you a couple of nights ago. So even if you feel like you're super busy, you have no time for meditation, consider that as you go, or you're never alone, always people around, right? As you go into the bathroom and you click the little lock shut, usually that's a brief moment in the day when nobody's going to bug you for at least 
like two minutes. <laughs> so this can be your meditation chamber. So uh, see for a moment like, oh, what if I was actually, and usually in that moment, you know, once you're a toilet train, you don't think about it too much. You know how to do this activity and you try and do it as fast as possible, right? Uh, or not thinking, thinking about something else. But what if you actually made this a moment to be aware of the body, right? So both aware of the body, what it's like to undo your clothes or sit down or unzip or whatever it is that you're doing there. Uh, and then as you're urinating or defecating, uh, you could reflect on the, the way in which you are actually like a water filter. You know, you've taken in the water, it's come through the system, and uh, now you're expelling it, and then it's going through the toilet, through the system, sort of back into nature. So reflect on yourself as sort of part of this system. Uh, if you want, you could remember your uh, microbiome also <laughs> in the toilet too, as uh, said that some of it is, is getting uh, uh, departing through your uh, feces too. <laughs> so even remembering that and recognizing like self, not self, right? You ate some food, here it comes, there it goes, right? Uh, allow yourself to feel all the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, whatever it is, right? And if you want, you can even bring a moment of universalizing to that, right? So all of these experiences are ones that all human beings have in some way, right? Uh, of all different ages, all different um, nationalities, all different belief systems, right? So flushing can uh, bring you together with uh, all of humanity in that way. Uh, brushing your teeth, something you do frequently, right? So in that moment, recognize what you're doing. You're taking care of this aspect of the body, right? This calcium hard, hardened aspect of the body, uh, cleaning it, uh, trying to protect yourself um, for the sake of being able to consume food, uh, for having good health. So also you can do this with a sense of uh, love and kindness, or at least with mindfulness and awareness. Um, and then even other stuff that you do, you know, brushing your hair, um, whatever your sort of cosmetic stuff that you do otherwise, if you to take your eyebrows and shape them or uh, any other kind of things that you do, um, see if you can bring some awareness of the body, of the nature of the body to that, uh, and even bring a sense of love. So even if you have no other uh, time that you can do all the other great things that we'll be suggesting tomorrow that you do for your practice, if you can bring caring for the body in these different ways uh, in as part of your practice um, and recognize the, the nature of the body, the nature of our connection to the rest of the world, uh, it can bring yeah, a lot of wisdom and shift your relationship to yourself and others. Thank you. So feel free if you want to just stand up or twirl around or stretch for a moment. We've been sitting for a while. So I appreciate um, the spontaneity here and the improv, and we'll try to figure out later 
if there was a thread. <laughs> and I trust there is. And I'm, I'm going to kind of also um, riff on a few things and maybe a little bit more poetic. And um, actually, this, this is a very interesting piece. This is almost like a rap. And um, I was teaching the 32 parts of the body in Santa Cruz one year, and somehow the list got to this Zen poet named Wendy Yen. And she wrote me a note saying she didn't like that list, and here's mine. And so this is called The 110 Functions of the Body. And it's kind of a little bit like a rap, so... Breath in and breath out. Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing. Hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing. Salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting. Transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing. Burning, building, copying, creating, destroying. Cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, propiocepting, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, and Enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying decaying. Very powerful list of our human experience. Here's one of the most supreme of teachings. It's from Henry James. It says there's three things in human life that are important. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. <laughs> From the great Zen poet Wuman, 10,000 flowers in the spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer, snow in the winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. If your mind isn't clouded by the unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. So in this retreat, we've been learning to let be, to let go, to be with things as they are, which is not easy. 
But if our mind is not clouded with unnecessary things, yes, it is indeed the best season of the life. So I'd like to offer you a very haunting and uh, beautiful reading from Reverend Sapphire Rose. It's called She Let Go. She, <clears throat> she let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all of the right reasons, wholly and completely and without hesitation or worry. She just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all of the memories that held her back. She let go of all of the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all of the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write a projected date on her daytimer. She made no public announcement, no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause, nor any congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. It was like a leaf falling from a tree. She just let go. There was no effort and there was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It was what it was and it was just that. And in the space of letting go, she let it all be. And a small smile came over her face. And a light breeze blew through her. And the sun and the moon shone forevermore. She just let go.
So I rang that to honor that poem, but there's still one more. <laughs> this is a reading of hope. It's written by uh, Naomi Shiabnai, and it's called Gate 4A. And this is something that happened to her some time ago. And we need to really hear her words here, ever more, never more than now. So she says, I'm wandering around the Albuquerque Airport Terminal after learning that my flight had been delayed. And I heard an announcement is there anyone around the gate 4A that speaks Arabic? And if so, please come immediately. Well, one pauses one day, and I recognize that gate 4A was my own, and I also understood some Arabic. I went there, and there was an old woman in a full Palestinian embroidered dress, just like the one my grandma wore, who was crumpled to the floor, and she was crying, and the flight service person was saying, Help, help, can anyone help me? And she saw me coming, she said to her, talk to her. What's your problem? And told her that, the f and we told her that the flight was going to be late, and she stooped to the floor and started crying. And so I just went to the woman, and I put my arms around her, and I spoke haltingly in the Arabic that I knew. And the minute she heard any of my words, however poorly I used them, she stopped crying. And she told me that she thought the flight had been canceled and she needed to be El Paso for a major medical treatment the next day. And I said, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. So we called her son and I spoke with him in English and I told her I'd stay with his mother until we got on the plane and I'd sit next to her since we were riding on Southwest. She talked to him and then we called her other sons just for fun. And then I called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic, and they found out, of course, that they had 10 shared friends. And then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some of my Palestinian poet friends that I know and let them chat with her too, and this all took a couple of hours. <laughs> By then, she was laughing a lot, and she was telling me about her life and patting my knee and answering questions. And then she pulled out a sack of homemade mamul cookies, those little powdered, sugary, crumbly mums, mounds stuffed with dates and nuts. She pulled this out of her bag and she began offering them to all the women and all the men around the gate. And to my amazement, not a single person declined. It was like a sacred sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mum from California, the loving, lovely woman from Laredo, they were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. And there was no better cookie. And then the airline broke out free beverages from huge coolers, and two little girls ran from our flight around serving all the people waiting, serving them apple juice, and they too had powdered sugar around their mouths as well. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands. And she had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carrying a plant, always staying rooted to somewhere. I looked around that gate of all these laid and weary passengers and I thought that this is the world I want to live in a shared world.
Not a single person in this gate was apprehensive about any other person. We all took the cookies, and I just wanted to hug all the other people too. This can still happen. This can still happen. Not everything is lost. This can still happen. Not everything is lost. This is the world I want to live in, a shared world. Not everything is lost. This can still happen. This can still happen. Not everything is lost. This is the world I want to live in. This is the world I want to live in. Now, if he speaks about this, he says, you know, everyone just really wants to be loved. And he says, well, why not be that one with a full moon in each eye that's saying in that sweet moon language what every other eye and heart in this world is dying to hear, love me. Why not be that one with a full moon in each eye that's saying in that sweet moon language, love me. Why not be that one? Not everything is lost. This is the world I want to live in. A shared world. So thank you so much and we'll We'll share this world together out in the stars. We're continuing to sit here. And of course, we'll be back here in a little bit for our last sit of the night. Thank you for your heart and attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.